Hello, it is time to read from the Sioux City Journal for today, Saturday, August 20th, 2022. My name is John Reef, and I'll be bringing you the news today. Here's a look at what we'll be reading. We'll start with the weather and then do the mini editorial, then stories on the front page and then to the inside pages for more stories. At the 30-minute mark, we'll do the obituaries and then uh, more sports and we'll have some feature stories as time allows, wrapping up with Dear Abby and the weather one more time. Forecast for today, some sun with a quick shower here and there possible. Humid today, a high of 77 degrees and winds out of the north at 8 to 16 miles per hour. Clear skies tonight, low down to 56 and winds north-northeast at 3 to 6 miles an hour. Mostly sunny on Sunday, humid, high reaching 80 degrees for Sunday and north winds at 4 to 8 miles per hour. Sunday night, mostly clear, 57 for the low. And then on Monday morning, well, Monday all day, mostly sunny and pleasant and a high of 82 degrees for the afternoon on Monday, winds south-southeast at 4 to 8 miles per hour. Mostly clear skies on Monday night, low reaching 58 degrees and mostly sunny on Tuesday, high up to 87 degrees and winds out of the south at 7 to 14 miles an hour. Tuesday night, clouding up a little bit, low down to 60 and partly sunny and pleasant again on Wednesday, a high of 86 degrees, winds south at 6 to 12 miles an hour. Looks like we're in for a pretty nice week. Taking a look at the mini editorial today, it's from John Rush, R-U-S-H, of Jackson, Nebraska. John Rush writes as follows. Otto Bismarck once said, quote, war is merely a continuation of diplomacy by other means, end quote. Today, armed late-night raids along with safe-cracking and a panty raid of the wife's wardrobe is merely politics by other means. Again, that by John Rush of Jackson, Nebraska. Top story on the front page, Russia probe memo wrongly withheld under Barr court rules. The Justice Department under Attorney General William Barr improperly withheld portions of an internal memo Barr cited in announcing that then-President Donald Trump had not obstructed justice in the Russia investigation, a federal appeals panel said Friday. The department argued that the 2019 memo represented private deliberations of its lawyers before any decision was formalized and was thus exempt from disclosure. A federal judge previously disagreed, ordering the Justice Department to provide it to a government transparency group that sued for it. At issue in the case is a March 24, 2019 memorandum from the head of the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel and another senior department official that was prepared for Barr to evaluate whether evidence in Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation could support prosecution of the precedent for uh, of the president for obstruction of justice. Barr has said he looked to that opinion in concluding that Trump did not illegally obstruct the Russia probe, which was an investigation of whether Trump's campaign colluded with Russia to tip the 2016 election. A year, a year later, a federal judge sharply rebuked Barr's handling of Mueller's report, saying Barr made, quote, misleading public statements, end quote, to spin the investigation's findings in favor of Trump and had shown a, quote, lack of candor, end quote. Friday's appeals court decision said the internal Justice Department memo noted that, quote, Mueller had de uh, declined to accuse President Trump of obstructing justice, but also had declined to exonerate him, end quote. 
The internal memo said, quote, the report's failure to take a definitive position could be read to imply an accusation against President Trump, end quote, if released to the public, the court wrote. The Justice Department turned over other documents to Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington as part of the group's lawsuit, but declined to give it the memo. Government lawyers said they were entitled under public records law to withhold the memo because it reflected internal deliberations before any formal decision had been reached on what Mueller's evidence showed. Sitting uh, sitting presidents generally are protected from criminal charges on grounds that would undermine their ability to perform the office's constitutional duties. The Justice Department, like Mueller, quote, took as a given that the Constitution would bar the prosecution of a sitting president, end quote, the appeals court wrote, which meant the decision that Trump wouldn't be charged already was made and couldn't be shielded from public release. Had Justice Department officials made clear to the court that the memo related to Barr's decision on making a public statement about the report, the appellate panel wrote rulings in the case might have been different. Quote, because the department did not tie the memorandum to deliberations about the relevant decision, the department failed to justify its reliance on the deliberative process privilege, end quote wrote the panel of judges from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. Appellate judges also noted that their ruling was, quote, narrow, end quote, saying that it should not be interpreted to, quote, call into question any of our precedents permitting agencies to withhold draft documents related to public messaging, end quote. Attorneys for the Justice Department didn't immediately respond to an email message seeking comment. The department can appeal the ruling to the full appeals court. Next story on the front page, Reliving History, Reenactors Enjoy Bringing Sergeant Floyd to Life. This is by Jared McNett and Dateline Sioux City. Ames, Iowa resident Dwight Peters owes plenty to the annual Sergeant Floyd Memorial Encampment in Sioux City. The 69-year-old retiree wasn't exactly a rugged outdoorsman before he joined reenactors for the August event more than 30 years ago. Now, the former Iowa Department of Transportation worker feels quite comfortable making his own gear and setting up a tent in the elements. Of even greater importance, he actually met his wife while doing reenactment work in Ottawa with a number of the same faces who show up in Sioux City year after year to commemorate the Lone Corps of Discovery member, Sergeant Charles Charles Floyd Jr., who died during the Lewis and Clark expedition on August 20th, 1804, near the monument that now bears his name. Peters still remembers the, quote, meet cute, end quote, with his wife, Therese, at the Lewis and Clark State Park ceremony. Quote, we did a cheesy little pageant on Saturday night. As I was walking down to the beach to take my place, I saw this attractive young lady sitting on the bank. I walked up and said hi. She smiled at me and said hi. And I walked off the bank, Peter said. Though Therese is unable to attend this year, Peters will be back as a, back as a reenactor at the Sergeant Floyd Memorial Encampment on Saturday from 10 a.m. until 4 p.m. and Sunday, 10 a.m. to 3 p.m., to help visitors explore era-specific tents, look at equipment and uniforms from the time of Meriwether Lewis and William Clark, 
and come to a better understanding of the historical excursion which ran through Siouxland 218 years ago. Along with the encampment, the Sergeant Floyd burial reenactment ceremony will be held at 6 p.m. Saturday on the grounds of the Sergeant Floyd Monument. Reenactors in full-dress uniform will recreate the burial of the only member of the expedition to die during their journey, and members of the public are able to watch it all unfold. Peters has portrayed expedition member John Potts every year he has taken part. The motivation? Some of his ancestors bore the same last name as the German frontiersman who often served as a hunter in the Corps of Discovery. The coincidence was just too good, Peters said. Never mind that the actual Private Potts was tall, had dark hair, and was still in his 20s when he enlisted, while Peters is 5'6 and has blonde hair. They have to use a lot of imagination, he said. On the first day of the encampment, Peters will awake before sunrise and don the wool uniform he has grown accustomed to over 30-plus years. Then he'll grab a hearty breakfast and make sure his relevant stations are ready for visitors. You know I enjoy this, otherwise I wouldn't be wearing a wool coat in August, he joked. Once people start coming in, Peters is there to guide them and to answer any questions, no matter how trivial, about the exploration efforts of folks like Lewis and Clark. In all of his time showing visitors around and fielding inquiries, there is one especially fond memory that comes to mind. I had a little girl, probably five or six years old, looking through the blacksmith area. I was working there, and she asked to see everything. I took her around and explained everything, and when I was all done, she gave me a big hug and said, Thank you, and walked away, Peter said. The blacksmith looked at me and said, Your wages are paid for the day. Denny Leonard, a member of the local reenactors group who has been at it for decades as well and is portraying Sergeant John Ordway for the 2022 festivities, says he cherishes those kinds of interactions too and also loves getting to combine something educational with something incredibly active. I always really enjoyed history and growing up on the farm and hunting and fishing and camping, and this is just a chance to do it as an adult, Leonard said. Along with the Sioux City event, which this year will include the dedication of an historical marker at 10 a.m. Saturday on the riverfront, Leonard has also taken part in the Ottawa Festival where three full-scale replica boats were made and had a camp at a Yankton, South Dakota archery shoot. And doing all that, Leonard said he has come to a greater appreciation of how tough things were in the past. Just the day in, day out, Leonard said, and especially a river. You just can't help but get wet and muddy. And you can imagine going upstream in 1804, and it's 14 hours a day of just a hard slog. As he gets older, Peters has had to adjust to the specific slog brought on by reenactments. I sleep on a cot now instead of the hard ground, he said. Some years, the heat or an uninvited rainstorm is particularly unbearable. And some of the reenactment friends he and Leonard made years ago are no longer around. Leonard said there will be less than 10 reenactors this year, though anyone is welcome to join up for future years of the encampment. But the campfire light that Peters and Leonard will sit and chat around after events are done hasn't dimmed one bit. On page A4, it shows an inset picture of Dwight Peters from Ames, who plays Private John Potts, 
talking about his replica musket that he's holding while he sets up the Sergeant Floyd encampment at the Sergeant Floyd River Museum and Welcome Center in Sioux City on Friday. On the front page, it again shows Dwight Peters from Ames, who plays Private John Potts, walking out of his early 1800s U.S. Army tent while he sets up the Sergeant Floyd encampment at the Sergeant Floyd River Museum and Welcome Center in Sioux City on Friday. Moving to the last story on the front page, Seven Candidates Seeking Open Seat. This is by Caitlin Yamada and Dateline Sioux City. Seven individuals have submitted letters of interest for the vacant Sioux City Community Board of Education position. The candidates include former Sioux City School Board member Flora Lee, former school board candidates Chad Crastell and Joshua Potter, former educator and district counselor Bernie Scolero, and community member uh, community members Maria Rundquist, Eric Bow, and Brian Miller. The successful candidate will complete Julie Albert's term, which she vacated early due to personal reasons. Her four-year term expires in November of 2023. The candidates had until 5 p.m. on Fridays to submit letters on interest. Here's a brief look at those who submitted. Flora Lee served on the school board for 12 years. She also has 30 years of experience in education, service on boards, and community service roles. Quote, I believe as a former school board member, I have the knowledge and skills to help to uh, step in with minimal disruption to the district, end quote, she said in her letter of interest. She said her goals are to assist in hiring a new superintendent, assuring the students receive a, quote, top-notch, end quote, education, and for staff members to feel trusted and safe. During her time with the district, she served with three different superintendents and one interim superintendent. I can and will provide experience in the process of us, the school board, hiring a superintendent, she said. Next, Bernie Scolero, who served as a school counselor at West High for 21 years and retired in May of 2021. She is currently substituting with the district. She was also a Sioux City Education Association building representative for two years and the president of the SCEA for two years. A few areas of concern she outlined, including the teacher shortage, the state-level attack, quote-unquote, on public education, mental health, safety, diversity, and continuing to address concerns from students, parents, and teachers. Scolero said she has attended school board meetings, spoken at them, and continues to follow the discussion and outcomes of those meetings. She has said she had considered running for school board after retiring, but decided to wait and give it, quote-unquote, thoughtful consideration. Quoting her again, this opening would provide me that opportunity to step in where I am not very far removed from serving as a school personal, uh, personnel counselor on a full-time basis, end quote, she said in her letter. Next is Joshua Potter. Joshua Potter is the lead pastor at First Assembly of God in Sioux City and ran in the most recent school board election in 2021. Through his work in the church, he has helped with the North High School Food Pantry and worked closely with students at Leeds Elementary. Being in the schools, Potter said he got to see the needs of students and families. He said he looks forward to the search for a new superintendent and helping establish a fresh vision for the district. Next is Chad Crastel. That's K-R-A-S-T-E-L. Chad Crastel is the Director of Safety and Commercial Estimator. 
with American Fence Company and also ran in the 2021 school board election. He has been outspoken at school board meetings in recent years after saying his four-year-old daughter was assaulted by a six-year-old girl at the Beyond the Bell program at Leeds Elementary School in 2020. Crastell frequently criticized the district's handling of the incident. With four children in the district, one with a rare genetic disorder, he said he has a unique ability to understand different aspects of the students' needs across the district. He hopes to use those skills to better the lives of students and parents in the district. He said he was unable to campaign as he wanted to in the election due to both he and his daughter needing surgeries. Quote, I still plan on running in 2023, but with this vacancy, a door open that I hope is a redemption for the situation during the prior election, end quote, he said in his letter of interest. Next is Maria Rundquist. She is a retired business owner, former Spanish teacher, and author. She has run unsuccessfully for various political positions over the years, including Woodbury County Board of Supervisors this year, Sioux City Mayor in 2019, City Council in 2013 and 2017, and Iowa Senate in 2014. She said her experiences as a volunteer, business owner, and Spanish instructor would be an asset for the district. Next is Eric Bowe. He is a retired senior engineering fellow from Raytheon Technologies. Bowe said during his time substitute teaching, he saw great potential in the students when given the right environment. Quote, my personal vision is that a school district should provide an ever-improving learning opportunity that is safe, respectful, supportive, and effective, end quote, he said. The last one uh, is Brian Miller. Brian Miller is the interim director of Morningside University's aviation program and curriculum. Miller is also a former commander of the 185th Air Refueling Wing. He was raised in Sioux City and graduated from the district. He said his history with the district and professional experiences have prepared him to serve as a member of the board. Quote, my sole objective in applying for this position is to make absolutely certain that future generations, including my own grandchildren, also receive a superior education provided by properly motivated, respected, and compensated teaching professionals, end quote, he said in his letter of interest. The Sioux City Community School Board gave two weeks for candidates to submit their names for potential appointment to the board. When a school board member vacates their position early, the board has few different option, has a few different options. They can hold a special election and allow voters to make the decision, or they can appoint someone to fill the remaining term. Historically, the Sioux City School District has chosen to appoint an individual. Applicants will be invited to speak and answer questions from the school board at its August 22nd meeting. The board will have until September 2nd to select a person to fill the remainder of Albert's term. If the board cannot make up its mind on, an, on a successor for Albert, a special election will need to be held. Moving now to page A2 for some local briefs to start. Man gets five years in prison for sexual abuse. This one datelined Omaha. A Winnebago, Nebraska man was sentenced this week to five years in federal prison for raping a woman while she slept. Howard Bassett III, 42, pleaded guilty in May in U.S. District Court in Omaha to one count of sexual abuse of an incapable victim. 
The victim told authorities that she was sleeping in her Winnebago home on November 9, 2020, and was awakened to Bassett on top of her. As she tried to push him off, he grabbed her by the neck and pushed her head into the bed. The woman escaped and alerted others in the home to call police. During an interview, Bassett told authorities the sex was consensual. Following the prison sentence, Bassett will have five years of supervised release. Next story, woman sentenced to prison for theft of benefits. A Sioux City woman was sentenced Friday to four months in federal prison for fraudulently obtaining more than $92,000 in federal benefits during a 10-year span. Margaret Ortega, 45, pleaded guilty in March in U.S. District Court in Sioux City to one count of theft of government funds. From November 2010 through November 2020, Ortega falsely reported to the U.S. Social Security Administration and Iowa Department of Human Services that her husband was not part of her household and she received no support from him. As a result, Ortega was overpaid a total of $92,744 in Social Security Supplemental Security Income Benefits, $88,176 on behalf of her daughter from January 2011 through November 2020, and $4,568 for herself during the same time period. Following the prison term, Ortega will have two years of supervised release. She was also ordered to pay $92,744.51 to the Social Security Administration and $23,079 to the Iowa Department of Human Services. Next story, Dateline Windside, Nebraska. Troopers find meth buried in a field. What began with reports of suspicious individuals going through private property on Wednesday morning ended with Nebraska state troopers digging up Uh, digging up approximately 20 pounds of methamphetamine and 3 grams of fentanyl in a field near the village of Windside, Nebraska. According to a report from the Nebraska State Patrol, Los Angeles resident Oscar Villa, Villa, 36, and Johanna Madrid, 27, were arrested after troopers said they discovered both individuals were in possession of meth. Quote, troopers also searched the area and located a handgun as well as a cattle prod that had been taken from another farm, end quote, the report said. From there, officials with the Nebraska State Patrol said the owner of the cattle prod reported finding a bag of an additional half pound of possible methamphetamine in a truck where the cattle prod had been located. State troopers say the investigation continued to build and they eventually... Sorry, a little issue with my system... Again, state troopers say the investigation continued to build and they eventually found 20 pounds of meth and the 3 grams of fentanyl in a field near the initial reported crime scene. According to the Nebraska State Patrol, Via was taken to Antelope County Jail and was hit with multiple charges included including making terroristic threats, possession of a controlled substance, possession with intent to deliver, possession of a firearm by a prohibited person, and use of a firearm to commit a felony. The report then states that Madrid was booked in Dakota County Jail for possession of a controlled substance, possession with intent to deliver, possession of drug paraphernalia, and theft. Next story from Sioux City, Dateline Sioux City, man who fatally shot roommate found guilty. A jury convicted a Sioux City man Friday in the shooting death of his roommate. Robert Buell, 53, was found guilty of second-degree murder and going armed with intent for the August 22nd shooting death 
of Jason Lafferty, 41, at their home at 211 21st Street. Buell is scheduled to be sentenced on October 18th in Woodbury County District Court. He is facing a 50-year prison sentence for second-degree murder. Going armed with intent carries a five-year sentence. Police say Buell and Lafferty got into an argument inside the residence and Lafferty went to the garage. According to court documents, Buell stayed in his upstairs bedroom before getting a 12-gauge shotgun and a 45 caliber handgun and going to the garage. Buell told police he pointed the shotgun at Lafferty and then set it down. Lafferty took the gun, emptied the shells from it, and began reloading it. Buell then pulled the handgun from his coat pocket and fired three shots at Lafferty, striking him twice, court documents said. When police arrived, Lafferty was dead. Detectives found the shotgun, which was empty, and all of the shells on the floor. The handgun and three spent shell casings also were found. Last story, a little bit more uplifting and something I'll be involved with, the Siouxland Humane Society to host the 20th Annual Pets on Parade. The Siouxland Humane Society will host its 20th Annual Pets on Parade timed 5K run or one-mile walk on September 17th at Riverside Park, 1301 Riverside Boulevard. Registration will start at 8.30 a.m. for the 5K run, which begins at 9.15 a.m. Registration will start at 9.30 a.m. for the 10.30 a.m. walk. Following the run-slash-walk, music, games, vendor tables, a kid's area, and pet contest will take place. So will a silent auction with items for people and pets. A listing of all silent auction items can be found at one. Uh, one.bidpal.net slash pets on parade 2022 slash welcome. I hit you with that one more time because that one's tough. One.bidpal.net slash petsonparade2022 slash welcome. Now moving back to some more national news. In the Arbery case, Georgiatown looks to move forward. This is by Shadi Abusaid, Dayline, Brunswick, Georgia. After two high-profile trials and the conviction of the three men responsible for Ahmad Arbery's murder, this coastal Georgia community is hoping to move forward. The unarmed black man's February 23, 2020 shooting in a Glynn County subdivision thrust the area into the national spotlight, highlighting racial tensions that many residents say lurked just beneath the surface. In the majority black city of Brunswick, where some streets still bear the names of Confederate generals and the occasional rebel flag bumper sticker can be spotted on the backs of old pickups, residents of all races came together to condemn the shooting and to call for justice. With the media scrum finally gone, residents and community leaders are now hoping for meaningful change. Quote, this incident showed that there wasn't true unity in Glynn County, end quote, said the Reverend Dwayne Cope, a Savannah native who moved to Brunswick from Washington, D.C. months after Arbery's murder. Cope, who was black, said he had a 17, had a, has a 17-year-old son he often worries about. After Arbery's shooting death, Georgia largely repealed its Civil War-era citizen's arrest law and created a hate crimes statute in increasing the punishment for those who commit crimes against someone based on their race, sexual orientation, religion, or other factors. But local religious leaders say change starts from within and have urged their congregants to be more accepting of their neighbors. 
Drew Thompson, the pastor of Union City Church in Brunswick, called Arbery's killing a, quote, tragedy and a horror, end quote, that stunned his community. He was among several clergy members who held a downtown prayer vigil last Monday morning, hours before Travis McMichael, his father Greg, and their neighbor William Roddy Bryan were sentenced on federal hate crimes charges. Quote, it was a horrific event, and it was a violation of everything that, they, that we say we believe in, Thompson said of Arbery's killing, but it exposed a reality that's existed in this community for a long time, and it forced us to talk about it. The truth is, it's never really been safe for a black man to run in some neighborhoods in Glynn County. We just haven't had to say that, end quote. Thompson said the shooting sparked a dialogue about race relations in the Brunswick area, a conversation that was long overdue. Quote, we can no longer look the other way, end quote. This has made us, quoting again, this has made us realize we've still got a long way to go, end quote. The morning after sentencing, dozens of people chanted and cheered in the hot sun as Brunswick officials dedicated Albany Street, a road that runs through the city's black community, as Honorary Ahmad Arbery Street. Arbery's parents unveiled the new street signs while the crowd sang the civil rights spiritual, ain't ain't gonna let nobody turn me around. Quote, I never imagined this day would come. I never did, end quote, said a tearful Wanda Cooper Jones, Arbery's mother. Quote, say his name, end quote, Georgia NAACP organizer Porsche Miller shouted into her bullhorn. Ahmaud Arbery, the crowd replied. Cooper Jones faced an uphill battle in her quest for justice, but in the end emerged triumphant. Glenn County Police now, or Glenn County Police saw Bryant's graphic cell phone footage of Arbery's final moments at the scene of his killing, but no arrests were made for 74 days. The three men weren't charged until the video of Arbery falling dead in the street was released and the GBI took over the investigation. Relentless in their quest for answers, Arbery's parents galvanized the community and led large demonstrations that drew national attention. Lifelong Brunswick resident S.E. Sheffield, 88 years old, attended the city-sponsored street dedication on August 8th. When she began her 30-year teaching career, Brunswick schools were still segregated. After integration, she taught at nearby Brunswick High, where Arbery would eventually graduate. Despite the hate crimes convictions and the social reckoning Arbery's killing inspired, Sheffield says racism is still very much alive in her community. Quote, if it wasn't for that video and the TV cameras coming in here, nothing would have happened, end quote, she said, referring to Brian's cell phone recording of Arbery being shot to death at close range and the media firestorm that followed. Quote, it just would have been swept under the rug, end quote. Arbery, an avid runner, lived about two miles from the Satilla Shores subdivision, just outside the city limits, and often jogged there. He had been seen on surveillance cameras visiting a home under construction a handful of times in the weeks leading up to his death. The McMichaels, who told police they thought Arbery was a burglar, grabbed their guns, jumped in Travis's truck, and chased him through their neighborhood for about five minutes as he ran for his life on that Sunday afternoon. Brian, who had been working on his porch, hopped in his pickup and joined in the chase after seeing Arbery run past his house with the McMichaels in pursuit, ultimately blocking Arbery's only escape route and redirecting him back toward the father and son. Authorities later determined Arbery had taken nothing from the house under construction. 
State prosecutors largely avoided making last year's murder trial about race, opting instead to secure a conviction by focusing on the facts of the case. Federal prosecutors, however, introduced racist text messages and social media posts at February's trial as they successfully argued the defendants likened black people to criminals. Had Arbery been a white man running through their subdivision, the government told jurors he would still be alive today. Travis and Greg McMichael were given life sentences without the possibility of parole on both the murder and hate crimes charges. Brian, who was unarmed when he joined the chase, will be nearly 90 by the time he's eligible for release, a federal judge told him at sentencing. Quote, then again, Mr. Arbery never got the chance to be 26, end quote. U.S. District Judge Lisa Godby Wood said she noted all three defendants got a fair trial, quote, the kind of trial Ahmad Arbery did not receive, end quote. It shows an inset picture on page A2 of Ahmad Arbery's father, Marcus Arbery, leaving the podium after giving his impact statement to Superior Court Judge Timothy Walmsley during the sentencing of Greg McMichael and his son, Travis McMichael, and a neighbor, William Roddy Bryan, on January 7th in the Glynn County Courthouse in Brunswick, Georgia. It's time now for the obituaries. We have six of them today. The first one from Spencer, Iowa, formerly Arnold's Park, Iowa, Jenny Burtness, that's B-E-R-T-N-E-S-S-G-E-N-N-Y, Jenny Burtness of Spencer, Iowa, formerly Arnold's Park, Iowa, 91 years old, passed away Thursday, August 18th. Services will be August 22nd at 1.30 p.m. at Trinity Lutheran Church in Lynn Grove, Iowa. Burial will be at Barnes Township Cemetery in Lynn Grove. Visitation will be August 21st from 3 to 5 p.m. at Warner Funeral Home in Spencer. From Spencer, Iowa, James Henry Irwin, E-R-W-I-N, James Henry Irwin of Spencer, Iowa, 90 years old, died Saturday, August 13th. Services will be August 20th at 11 a.m. at First Baptist Church of Spencer. Burial will be at Riverside Cemetery of Spencer. Arrangements are with Warner Funeral Home of Spencer. From Dakota City, Harry Germain Griffin, G-R-I-F-F-I-N, Harry Germain Griffin of Dakota City, 49 years old, died Tuesday, August 16th. Services will be August 23rd at 10 a.m. Meyer Brothers Colonial Chapel. Burial will be at Logan Park Cemetery. Visitation will be August 23rd from 9 to 10 a.m. at the funeral home. From Clive, Iowa, Dick Crambeck, that's K-R-A-M-B-E-C-K, Dick Crambeck, 83 years old, of Clive, entered into peace Wednesday, August 17th. Services will be held at 2.30 p.m. today at Cummings Family Funeral Home in Bedford, Iowa. Visitation will be held prior to the service starting at 1 p.m. Memories may be shared with the family at CummingsFamilyFuneralHome.com under obituaries. Richard Dick Eugene Crambeck was born on January 7, 1939 in Atlantic, Iowa to Klaus Frederick Crambeck and Catherine Lucille Redmond Crambeck. He grew up south of Walnut, Iowa, and graduated from Walnut High School in 1957. He furthered his education at Northwest Missouri State University in Maryville, Missouri, where he obtained secondary education and social science degrees. Dick enlisted with the Army Reserves in 1962 and was active duty for six months, then discharged a year later. Dick began his teaching career in Malvern, Iowa, where he taught for two years, then Nevada, Sibley, and Bishop Garrigan High School at Algona. He was also a football coach while teaching the 11 years. 
Dick was united in marriage to Elaine Ann Cummings on June 1, 1963 in Bedford. Dick attended St. Paul's School of Theology from 1976 to 1981 and began his ministry in Shelby, Iowa for four years. He moved to Alliance, Nebraska, where he did, he did jail ministry for a year while serving the United Methodist Churches there in Lakeside, Nebraska. Through the years, he served appointments for United Methodist Churches in Iowa, including Pearson, Meadow Star and Washta, Mapleton, Taconic, several of the Centerville area, and then Missouri Valley, Iowa, where he retired after 11 years. Dick was also the chaplain for the Harrison County Sheriff's Department and the Iowa State Patrol for the Council Bluffs District. Dick retired in June of 2001 when he and Elaine moved to Atlantic. While in retirement, Dick took on part-time status covering small churches near Atlantic, Pine Grove, United Methodist, and Cumberland United Methodist. Dick was also uh, Dick also was a co-facilitator of a grief support program at Roland Funeral Home in Atlantic. Dick was a member of the United Methodist Church Annual Iowa Conference um, School Board at Shelby, Board of Boys Club of America in Alliance, Past Kiwanis, and Board of County Health and Library Board at Missouri Valley, YMCA Board in Atlantic, and Assistant Football Coach at Atlantic High School in 2001 and 2002. Memorials may be directed toward the family to be established in Dick's honor. May God grant comfort and peace to all that loved and knew Dick. Next one from South Sioux City, Vlasta Val Peltz. That's P-E-L-T-Z. First name is spelled V-L-A-S-T-A. Vlasta Val Peltz, 89 years old of South Sioux City, passed away Thursday, August 18th. Services will be August 22nd at 10.30 a.m. at St. Michael's Catholic Church. Burial will be at St. Michael's Catholic Cemetery. Visitation August 21st from 5 to 7 p.m. Moore and Becker Hunt Funeral Home in South Sioux City are handling the arrangements. And the final one for today from Moville, Iowa, Mark G. Rickard, R-I-C-A-R-D. Mark G. Rickard of Moville, 65 years old, passed away Wednesday, August 3rd. Services will be August 20th at 10 a.m. at Nicholas D. Jensen Funeral Home of Moville. No burial or visitation. Moving now to some sports. We're going to talk college volleyball for a while. Start as the Morningside Volleyball Preview the title is Loving, Serving, and Caring. Mustangs seek to connect in 2022. This by Zach James and Dateline Sioux City. Before the season started, Jessica Squire's biggest goal was to see how the Morningside University volleyball team handled failure. The Mustangs are a young team. There are just three upperclassmen and a roster of 25 ladies. So Squire, the Mustangs coach, has challenged her young team in several different ways. She wants to make sure the Mustangs are mature enough to handle adversity when they take the court. The biggest thing is that we're working on the biggest thing we're working on is handling our emotions, Squire said. We have a lot of talent, we are very athletic, and they're very supportive of each other. We're a bunch of people pleasers, so handling failure is tough right now. There's one scrimmage already where that lesson was already taught. The Mustangs played last week in a scrimmage against the University of, of Sioux Falls. There, the Mustangs learned that team camaraderie does, does matter. During the first set, Squire noticed there wasn't much energy on the bench and not much communication on the floor. The positive, however, is that Morningside recognized that in between sets number one and number two and didn't let that become a problem against the Cougars. They can only get that through experience, Squire said. We're giving them as many opportunities in practice as we can, 
What is their self-talk like and how to be coached is tough too. Coaches are different and handling a new program can be difficult too. We're so young and need to get those jitters out. Morningside also scrimmaged nationally third-ranked Bellevue, and that's where Squire was impressed. They didn't practice much on their rotations before scrimmaging the Bruins, but according to the Mustangs coach, the Mustangs stayed with their opponent throughout the match. That was encouraging for us to see, Squire said. We didn't error ourselves out of games, and we had so many errors last year. That might be one of our strengths this year. Morningside started its season Thursday at the Chick-fil-A Classic down in West Palm Beach, Florida. Right out of the gate, the Mustangs faced Southeastern and Cumberland, and then they'll turn around to play two games early Saturday morning. The trip served two purposes, a chance for the Mustangs to see good teams, to get them ready for the GPAC slate that begins in a couple of weeks, and it allowed the Mustangs to bond closer. We focused a lot on loving, serving, and caring for each other, Mustang senior Riley Rolls said. It's been a main point on and off the court. We need to make sure that there's someone there for them. It has nothing to do with volleyball. The Mustangs have one goal this year, and that's, as Squire put it, to out-team the other team. That means to be louder than the opponent and be more supportive to each other than the other team. When we do team activities, we need to make sure everyone is caring, Marlowe said. Last year, it was a little bit of a wake-up call. The majority of the starters were underclassmen, and it was hard. It was all about connectedness. On the court, the Mustangs had six girls in their rotation. Sidney Marlowe and Emerson Smith were part of that rotation. Squire said there have been a couple of middle hitters who played predominantly junior varsity, but she was surprised at how they played this season. A couple of additional new faces that Squire mentioned in her press conference on Tuesday included Sheldon High School grad Peyton Lode and Kyla Brewer from Omaha. They've been doing some fun things in practice, Squire said. They're probably going to go back and forth in practice and feed off that consistency right now. Squire said that even though the Mustangs are young, she would like to, them to play at a faster tempo. She hopes that the time from pin to pin is around a second, and in the match against USF, the Mustangs were at a clip of .7 to .8. We're Jekyll and Hyde with our ball control right now, Squire said. That does make it hard for our centers to control the tempo, but when we are passing twos and threes, it is a little bit faster. The Mustangs went 11-20 last season and 2-14 and in the G-Pack. Those two wins came against Briarcliff and Hastings. The win against the Broncos happened on senior night. Marlowe returns as the leading hitter with 298 kills, followed by Meredith Hoffman at 270. Bridget Smith had 348 assists as a freshman last year. Peyton Showquist had 560 digs. Claire Wilson had 56 blocks for the Mustangs last season. Shows an inset picture on the front page of Morningside Sydney Marlowe hitting a kill shot during a Morningside University versus Briarcliff University volleyball action. This was on September 8, 2021 in Sioux City.